From the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., this is Update One, the club's official podcast. It features newsworthy stories originating from the NPC facilities, as well as broader topics related to journalism, communications, press freedom, and transparency. I'm Tom Young with the National Press Club's Broadcast Committee in Washington. Author and military veteran Matt Gallagher brings a unique perspective to his reporting on the war in Ukraine. He has traveled to Ukraine as a journalist and as a volunteer with a team training local civilians in self-defense tactics in a combat environment. His articles for Esquire place the reader side-by-side with Ukrainian civilians turned fighters defending their homes. Matt joins us by phone from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Tom. You've said you first traveled to Ukraine as a journalist, but then realized you wanted to contribute something besides becoming just another reporter there. Tell us about what you wound up doing. So our first trip there, I went alongside uh, two fellow American military veterans. And uh, in the city of Lviv in western Ukraine, we ended up working with a group of civilians that were looking to just kind of learned some basics on self-defense in case the uh, Russian invasion reached reached their city, um, how to defend their, their homes and neighborhoods. Uh, you know, we didn't turn them into military commandos or anything, but uh, we wanted them to uh, have some confidence that if and when they chose to pick up a rifle uh, to, to protect themselves and their families, uh, they had some capabilities that they weren't just going to go die needlessly in the street. So it was very fulfilling work. Uh, we worked with them for three weeks, and you know, some of some of those folks ended up joining the Ukrainian military after we left. Um, some remain civilians uh, uh, in Ukraine and are contributing to the war effort in in other ways. And talk about some of the challenges you faced as a trainer in Ukraine. I would imagine it's it's very different from training U.S. troops who've been through basic training. Oh, very much so. I mean, these these were not soldiers; these were everyday people, bus drivers, teachers, uh, welders folks who never thought they'd be in a position to, to have to do anything like this. Uh, but here they were. You know, At the time, we, we know now that the Russians didn't reach that part of Ukraine, that they were turned back at the Battle of Kiev. But at the time, you know, the, the possibility of the invasion reaching them was, was very real and very prescient. And you know, they showed up very dutifully uh, every morning, coming to work hard to learn maybe just one, one or two things that uh, they could add to their skill set and when they needed to, to employ it. That's pretty impressive. Your story of traveling to Ukraine initially to write about it and then needing to contribute something else reminds me a bit of George Orwell. He went to Spain to cover the Spanish Civil War, and he wound up a soldier. Perhaps that made him the ultimate embedded reporter. Now, some journalists favor strict objectivity, keeping the reporter at a certain remove as purely an observer. But I would think if you really get down in the trenches, you get a perspective you can't obtain any other way. Well, first, I appreciate that comparison because Orwell's Homage to Catalonia is, is an all-time book uh, on my on my li- library shelf. But yes, you know, both both um, in my writing about that first trip and then my subsequent ones as a, as a journalist, you know, capturing kind of the everyday human experience of what Ukrainians are are, are going through, both the soldiers on the front line in the trenches, near and around Bakhmut, um, and, and then also just kind of the everyday people in the, the towns and cities further away from the front, um, but 
very much under threat of, of cruise missile strikes or artillery uh, artillery strikes. You know what what their lives are like in kind of this uh, constant constant warfare that is nearing its, its its second year, and you know really no end in sight um, as far as how long this is going to go on and and endure and, and you know how that's changing and impacting an entire culture and society. The headline to your most recent Esquire article said there are only two options left in Ukraine. Uh, tell us about that latest trip to Ukraine and what are those two options? Right. Uh, that trip occurred in uh, August 2023. Um, spent the better part of the month there traveling uh, uh, various parts of the front all the way uh, in the far north in, in uh, Sumyoblast, down to the, uh, the Bakhmut area. Uh, in the east, and then down to Kyrgyzstan in the far south, uh, which was uh, recently liberated uh, by Ukrainian troops a few months ago. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of kind of uh, uh, river warfare that's been occurring between the two militaries. You know, the two options, frankly, are, are victory or death. Uh, even the most bitter, even the most dejected soldier I spoke with, and, and, and there's plenty of that, you know, the, 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 the grim... The grimness of, of, of everything has, has settled in knows that, that uh, there really is no other choice but victory. They don't want to be enveloped by this Russian empire. And what I found fascinating, Tom, you know, this grim, grim resolve wasn't just kind of an empty platitude being being spoken by those far away from uh, the combat. Uh, you know, in, in these kind of Russian-speaking villages and towns uh, near near the front. Um, Everyday citizens and the soldiers uh, spoke very forthrightly about uh, how much they resent Putin and, and Russia trying to uh, take over. Uh, some of them even admitted that before the war, their politics were Russia-friendly. But it turns out that an armed military invasion that kills young young men and women that you know, that you know, kills innocent civilians uh, that you know, that destroys destroys your village and town that you've lived in your whole life, that has consequences uh, and an impact on, on how these people think, you know, about their neighboring country to to their north and to their east. So it's very grim. It's very dark, especially compared to, to those earlier trips where there was still, you know, kind of a, a fresh, renewed energy surrounding everything. But the, the result is still there. If anything, it's, it's deeper and it's more entrenched. The thing that strikes me most about your reporting is the people you meet, the variety of folks who are volunteering to defend their country. Just to pick one, there was the artillery man you said in peacetime would be the guy who shows up at all of his kids' soccer games. Right. Kind of capturing a wide swath of Ukrainian society was, was important to me, um, uh, to, to try to bring these these stories home to, to Western readers who, who maybe are unfamiliar with the area, feel very far away and removed from, from the ongoing war uh, and, and you know, try to be a bridge to remind these, these people that if not for geography, this would be us, right? Valari, the, the man, you, man you mentioned, was, was not a soldier before the war broke out. He, he, was, he was humanitarian. He, he was a, uh, a weightlifting coach for, uh, for high school uh, and teenage athletes. He's since become an artilleryman fighting in Bakhmut because he wants a better future for, for his sons kind of a classic case of kind of a, a, a generational change. He's, he's in his early 50s. He's more comfortable speaking Russian. 
but he's deeply proud that his, that his sons are, are so fluent in Ukrainian. Kind of across the country, I heard this idea kind of expressed in, in, in different ways that, okay, even if you didn't think we weren't a real country before this, because like any place, Ukraine has geographical differences, economic differences, cultural differences across, across the country. Um, you know, if you didn't think we were a real country before this, well, we certainly are now. Um, uh, you know, that, that being under uh, the threat of Ru- Russian invasion and occup- uh, occupation is, has brought together these disparate parts of the country in a way that maybe didn't exist beforehand. You go to a different part of the country and you meet uh, somebody like Fedor, uh, who was a car mechanic before the war uh, and, and, and was drafted um, uh, somewhat reluctantly, but thought it, was, knew it was his duty to serve his country um, and, and traveled to a part of Ukraine he'd never been to before and without this war probably never would have been to otherwise. But then he gets there and he sees something in, in, in the air and, 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 and meets the local people and, and realizes, no, this is, this is my country. This is, this, this is part of the reason I'm, I'm here to uh, uh, protect it and, uh, and, and endure just real terrible hardship um, under, under miserable, miserable conditions, particularly in the winter. And speaking of these fascinating characters you're meeting, there was also a 54-year-old historian who decided to help make some history and a 44-year-old woman sniper. Orst, uh, the historian, who's now wounded um, and kind of completed the, the, the soldier's cycle and is, is waiting to be discharged. Uh, and then Elena, who's the real deal in terms of combat experience and, and, and um, uh, tactical prowess uh, and uh, is, is very much a threat to Kremlin propagandists because it's embarrassing for them to be not only not successfully waging a war against their smaller neighbor uh, as they planned, uh, you know, what was 72 hours to Kiev was, was the original idea, uh, uh, but to be losing to a, uh, uh, to a military that uh, allows women to fight for it on top of it. Um, uh, somebody like her really infuriates them. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, she spoke very humorously but very candidly about the very uh, the many numerous fake death announcements uh, uh, Russian media has spread uh, of her because of this. Uh, the lorry, the, the artillery mentioned uh, artilleryman we mentioned earlier, um, he, he he spoke um, about you know kind of radio communications they pick up um, from the R- Russians in the Bakhmut area, uh, claiming that it's the American and the Americans and the Poles that are pushing them back. Uh, because it's less embarrassing, uh, maybe to be retreating from NATO forces than it is from from Ukrainians. Uh, but you know, he, he said with a wry smile. Uh, unfortunately, no. The truth is, it's just us. Uh, I wish the Poles and the Americans were here, but no, it's just us. <laughs> wow. So, how do these soldiers see the war ending? What's the end game for them, and for that matter, what's the end game for Russia? We got a multitude of different answers. Uh, Elena, for example, feels very strongly that that. Uh, a firm military victory is, is the only way. Otherwise, you know, they'll simply delay Russia's aggression, right, That'll, that a version of this will happen again. Um, uh, another Ukrainian I met with, a, a platoon commander uh, who goes by the call, call sign of media, um, he, he, he kind of had a, a, a different view on it. Um, he had a very kind of jaded uh, take on the geopolitics of it all, that, that he believes that um, through some pressure from the West, uh, a, a sort of tr- 
treaty will be brokered that will allow um, Russia to to maybe hold some of the territory they've gained in the war since, and, and that a sort of calm will settle in. But uh, both sides will just continue to build up, uh, waiting, waiting kind of for the next phase of the war. That uh, even if there's an official announcement, neither side will really believe there will be an enduring peace. Now, that's just one man's opinion, and it, it should be noted that uh, the Zelensky and, and his administration have have made it clear over and over again that they would not agree to to such terms. But it wouldn't be the first time uh, that. Uh, uh, even good politicians go back on their word in the light of, of geopolitical pressure. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, a stalemate is going to settle in, at least for the winter, right? It is uh, uh, with, with all the cover kind of gone um, and, and the, the deep freeze settling in, it seems very likely that the lines that are drawn right now here, here in uh, early December will remain this way at least through, at least through March. Your background includes service as an army officer in Iraq. So when you write about Ukrainians volunteering to defend their country, I imagine you have a pretty good idea of what they're signing up for, and I imagine that uh, gives a fresh perspective to your writing as well. I, I, think that, that, uh, I have a decent understanding of what awaits them, but you know, in, in many ways this war is, is very different than the one that, that I fought in, uh, in, in Iraq. Um, Speaking with these Ukrainian veterans, uh, they talked about kind of endless artillery bombardments, uh, having to deal with uh, drones uh, uh, dropping munitions from the sky. You know, that's nothing uh, like what I dealt with or what any any uh, American veteran dealt with in Iraq or Afghanistan. We controlled the sky. We never had to worry about that. We had other things to work, to concern ourselves with. But uh, as I was listening to Oris, that the, the historian from Lviv, talk about the psychological terror of a long artillery bombardment. Um, you know, it, it sounded like something out of a, a World War I uh, history book, uh, more than anything I saw or did in Iraq. So, you know, I, I can maybe draw some connections uh, from personal experience for the reader that, that help illuminate uh, what, these, what these people are, are dealing with um, in defense of their, their country. But some things are, are just as foreign to me as, as they would be to to most any Westerner. As we record this podcast, American aid to Ukraine is becoming a hot-button political issue, and it will probably become even more so in an election year. So what's the status of equipment and supplies for Ukrainian forces right now? They need artillery. That is something I heard from every Ukrainian soldier, no matter the rank, no matter where they were uh, located in the country. Uh, uh, no matter their own politics or their own feelings on, on, on how this war is being carried out, uh, uh, they need more artillery to, to, to match uh, what the Russians uh, are, are bringing to the fight. And it brought me great personal concern that, that perhaps we, uh, uh, as Americans, have allowed our government to kind of overmanage this, right? Okay, Ukraine's an ally. We're going to support them. Why haven't we completely trusted them uh, to, uh, with, with the weapons that they request and to, to use as they see fit. Are they or are they not an ally? Um, you know, there's been a lot of kind of partitioning out and uh, allocations and for a few months here and there. And, you know, I, 
my expertise is, is is with these human stories. It's certainly not with the kind of Machiavellian geopolitical chess chess games that that that, that have to be played with something like this. But it's it's hard to hear these personal testimonies again and again and again, talking about how they need more munitions, particularly artillery, uh, 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 while fighting a, fighting a war that, frankly, we would never ask uh, our own troops to, to, to try to do. So, you know, to try to advance uh, on foot that way with uh, at an artillery disadvantage, we would never ever have American troops do that. The, the outrage here uh, amongst our population would be tremendous. It was hard to hear these these personal testimonies and, and not come back and wonder why we've been more devoted to half measures and worried about secondary and tertiary, tertiary consequences rather than just helping our allies win. You wrote about a Ukrainian intel unit that uses privately donated drones. Is that typical? Does the Ukrainian military often equip itself that far outside of normal supply chains? Yes, uh, both because they have to and because they're uh, a very innovative people. Um, you know, in so many ways, I saw Ukrainians doing things that uh, made me think that they kind of are what Americans think we are, right? In terms of being freedom-loving, in terms of uh, 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 finding very creative solutions under dire circumstances, um, in terms of kind of uh, uh, crowdsourcing and, and, and unifying as a country and a society. Uh, you, know, you know, those privately donated drones are. are one example, you know, carving out uh, and, and cr- kind of creating um, uh, on-the-fly on uh, munitions for these drones was another example. I mean, you, you, I saw this across the country um, where, you know, kind of the big, um, you know, for all the money, for all the, the weapons support the West has been sending Ukraine's way, sometimes it just doesn't reach the front, the front lines. You know, perhaps there are some abnormal reasons for that. Perhaps there are some very normal reasons for it. Well, what do good soldiers do? They adapt and they overcome. And, and, and that's what the, you know this group was doing. Uh, well, okay, it's not coming through official channels. Well, you know, uh, I, I know some people back home that want to help out. And uh, here we go. We got this drone, so we can we can match we can match what the Russians are sending our way. Um, it's both inspiring and and, and also frankly uh, enraging, given uh, you know kind of the broader po- politics of, of what's going around the war, and then you know you know meeting these guys at the front and seeing what, how they're actually living and, and what they're actually doing. Uh, it, you know, the, the reality being broadcast on TV uh, by well, well-intentioned people sometimes is not the reality um, in the trenches. And uh, yet here they are showing up dutifully every day, protecting one another, protecting their, pr- protecting their families back home. Uh, because if not them, if not them, then who? Well, speaking of the version of reality that's depicted on television, how do you rate the quality of most American reporting on Ukraine? Are there things reporters often miss? Well, it's fallen off a ton uh, as Western attention has waned. Um, uh, There are some great writers and reporters uh, that have spent time in Ukraine. Uh, Luke Mogelson's dispatches for The New Yorker come to mind. Uh, McWayne Bishop uh, for Rolling Stone. Uh, Sergio Olmos. you know, these are these are thoughtful, good writers uh, risking themselves to get deep human stories uh, for uh, for Western audiences to perhaps better understand. Um, I do worry that uh, you know, as attention wanes to other terrible things happening across the globe, that uh, there's going to be less and less of this. Uh, you know, for me personally, 
I write the kind of stories that I want to read about. Um, you know, th- these uh, these everyday citizens who have become soldiers, who had entire lives and dreams and ambitions that had nothing to do with this uh, uh, only two years ago. Um, you know, that's all been upended, and uh, uh, showing showing how that's changed them, uh, showing people why they made the decision they did, um, and what that means, not just not just for the individuals uh, profiled, but also for their families. Um, you know, I, that, that's my goal uh, every time I go over there and, and, and put together a piece is, is, is again, to, to remind readers, uh, you know, if not for geography, this very well could be you or me. And what would you be doing if you happen to be born in Mariupol instead of Baltimore? Excellent question. You alluded to this a bit earlier, but when Russia first rolled into Ukraine, a lot of observers expected a quick Russian victory. And, of course, that did not happen. Why do you think Ukrainian forces have exceeded all expectations? A few different reasons. Uh, You know, that kind of fierce national resolve that we all saw in March 2022 uh, is very real. It's very pronounced. Um, And... uh, uh, that's a testament to, to the Ukrainian people, not just not just the fighters. Um, uh, a lot of training uh, from NATO forces uh, occurred uh, between 2014, after kind of uh, uh, the first uh, Russian invasion into into Donbas, um, uh, between 2014 and 2022, um, and built up a, a very capable professional force um, and. and uh, uh, turning the Russians back in, in the Battle of Kiev really was a testament to uh, to, to that work um, that was that was put in uh, sometimes slowly but uh, always steadily uh, in those eight eight nine years. Uh, and another another aspect of it, frankly, is uh, um, uh, the leadership of, of Zelensky. You know, he w- he was a great unknown. Um, he's not really the guy that uh, I think. You know, American power brokers would have preferred to have won that presidential election a few years ago. Uh, they wanted the other guy. Uh, well, he uh, he won. Uh, Ukrainians were looking for something different. They were look, looking for some, something fresh. But you talked to him, uh, uh, and, uh, and no one was more surprised that, that he turned out to be the kind of man that he is, frankly, more than even some of the Ukrainians that, that voted for him, um, uh, showing that I mean, these, these old world ideals and, and values of, of leadership and, and resolve and, and bravery and, and moral courage, those still matter in the 21st century. And, you know, seeing Ukrainians uh, from, you know, the, the everyday car mechanic turned soldier uh, that we interviewed all, all the way up to Zelensky, you know, kind of talk about these, these notional ideas of freedom and independence and democracy uh, in, in a very proud and forceful way. Um, you know, I, I think it's important for us uh, as maybe people from, from a country that take those things for granted to remember those things are, are to be fought for, are, are to be treasured, are to be protected. Um, and, uh, you know, even if you don't agree with me on that, I, I, I hope that most listeners would agree that let's try to be the America that, that Ukraine, Ukrainians sometimes think we are. Um, because, you know, despite our many failures, our many blunders uh, over the past few decades, the fact of the matter is, at least in that part of the world, we are seen as a beacon of hope. Uh, and I know how that sounds <laughs> to some people. 
who, who uh, might be skeptically inclined, but it's very real. Uh, and, and you know, I, I saw it every day I was over there um, uh, and talk, talking to people. If they heard me speaking American English, they were coming over to thank me just for being there. And, you know, I, as an Iraq veteran, I promise you, I've, I, you know, I, I've been places in the world where that is not for very understandable reasons. That, that, that was not always the reception uh, I received in, in, in living rooms elsewhere in the world. And uh, it, it's worth bearing in mind um, as, as we uh, consider uh, how we uh, as American citizens can, can uh, choose to support Ukraine from far away. Your books include fiction and nonfiction, and your newest comes out in February. It's a novel titled Daybreak, set in the Ukraine war. Uh, Matt, can you tell us a little bit about Daybreak? Sure thing. Uh, as you mentioned, it's, uh, it's a novel, and it tells American veterans uh, who fought in Afghanistan uh, in, into uh, the city of Lviv in late February 2022. Uh, one, uh, Han Lee, is looking to join the fight. He wants to uh, join the International Legion and uh, uh, return to combat because he's found civilian life deeply unsatisfying. Uh, and the other, uh, the protagonist, uh, is named Luke Paxton. He's kind of going for more muddled, ambiguous reasons. He uh, wants, to, wants to help um, uh, because he has some dark, complicated uh, memories from his own service uh, in, in Afghanistan and, and, and sees this uh, uh, as, as, as kind of a different type of uh, cause that he can be a part of. But he's also looking for an old flame, uh, a Ukrainian woman named Svetlana that he once cared very deeply for 10 years before and uh, kind of associates losing her with, uh, with when everything in his life started going wrong. So, you know, it's, it's loosely, very, very loosely informed on some people I, I've met in my travels and, and uh, conversations I've had. Uh, but, you know, with any good fiction, you're, I'm trying to tap into maybe a deeper emotional truth. Uh, uh, and, you know, not just of, of the American military veteran experience, but also of this war and, and, and what uh, Ukraine is is uh, uh, being forced to to go through and endure uh, uh, against against their will, uh, you know, against an, uh, an unjust military invasion that that happened to happen to occur uh, uh, because they're they're next to a larger neighbor that wants to dominate them. We've been talking with Matt Gallagher, an Iraq war veteran, a journalist and the author of four books. Thanks so much for your time, Matt. I'm Tom Young, reporting for Update One from the National Press Club in Washington. You have been listening to Update One, the official podcast of the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists and a vigorous advocate of press freedom worldwide. If you have any questions or comments about Update One, send an email to updateonepodcast at gmail.com.